0: Building a startup requires constant evaluation of trade offs. At the earliest stage, the founders evaluate different ideas. Once an idea is settled on, the company develops strategies for finding early customers and growing. As the company develops traction, the operators consider ways to scale further or partner with an acquirer. Joseph Jacks and Greg Koberger are two founders who have both been on the show previously on separate episodes. Joseph started Kismatic, which was the earliest company completely focused on Kubernetes. Kismatic was acquired by Apprenda last year. Greg Koberger runs ReadMe.io, which is a company that provides beautiful documentation as a service. He was on in one of the earliest episodes of Software Engineering Daily in a really good episode that we did. This is one of the good earlier episodes, and I credit greg to just being a great guest and a great conversationalist so i recommend people check back both of those episodes the episodes i've done with joseph and the episode i've done with greg in this episode greg and joe share their thoughts on running and scaling startups we discuss engineering concerns scaling strategies and discussions of what to build and what to buy Greg Koberger is the CEO of ReadMe.io and Joseph Jax was a founder of Kismatic. He's an expert in the Kubernetes and cloud native space. And today we're going to talk about a variety of topics. It's a topic round table episode, which we do occasionally on Software Engineering Daily. Guys, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having us. Thanks, Jeff.
0: So Greg, you started ReadMe three years ago how has your perspective on running a company changed over that period of time? Maybe you could talk a little bit about what ReadMe is for people who haven't heard that episode.
1: Sure. So ReadMe is, uh, we do documentation for APIs, code libraries, other technical stuff. So we kind of call them developer hubs. Um, If you're familiar with like developer.anything.com. I'm sure if you're a developer, you've seen some sort of like developer hub we do that. We do documentation, we do reference guides, we let you play around with the API in line. We have suggested edits so people can like help you out with your docs. We have support forms, pretty much everything. So that's what README does. As far as how running a company I've changed, it's not, it's all kind of sad stuff in the sense that I think that, you know, I got into it very idealistic and I still am of course. But I've kind of, I wouldn't say, there's a lot of things over the past three years that I've had to kind of loose my stance on or change my opinion on. Um, it's always hard to decide what what's something you can change your opinion on and what's not. So what I mean by that is, oh, I always, I like product stuff. I like, you know, products kind of my passion as opposed to, for example, sales. And I think everyone, when they start a company, they think it's going to be amazing enough that they will... Not have to do anything. It's kind of like a build it and they will come type thing. At least when you really care about the product, you think you know you don't need marketing because word of mouth is going to be amazing. You don't need sales because people are going to see the value instantly. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to build features. All your features can be on the cheapest plan because you're going to have everyone's going to be using it. And you know what, seven billion people times a small amount of money, you're going to be a trillionaire pretty quickly. And I don't want to imply that, you know, I've given up on my morals and stuff like that, but because I haven't, but it's just little things like, you know, trying to, have to build features that are only in the thousand dollar a month plan. Um, not because you, you know, me three years ago, be like that cripples the product, it hurts the users. And I still don't not think that, but, you know, I've had to think a lot more about making money because when I started the company, I thought that making money felt greedy. Now I feel it's more of a way to, you know, Keep the company going. Keep people. It allows me to hire more people, which lets us do cooler stuff, things like that. So I think there's a lot of differences that have changed, but I think that's kind of the biggest thing is I've shifted from really caring about the product, which I still do, to caring about the product, but having to care about making money as a way to keep the product going and and make it bigger, bigger and better.
0: I think a lot of people have that transformation. I know even with software engineering daily. You know, initially I was like, oh, this will be so easy. People will be calling in for the podcast ads as soon as I start selling them. <laughs> but you learn you've got to do some outbound sales. You learn, yep. oh, this is why there are so many books written about sales. This is why sales is a thing. It's not It's not like, oh, we're not in real estate and we're not in finance. We don't have to do sales. You have to learn sales if in most parts of software, like ninety, like 98% of software businesses have to figure out how to do sales.
1: Yep. Even the best companies still need, uh, whether you call it sales or you call it customer success or customer support or don't even have sales, but just think about making money. I'm yet to meet a company that hasn't had to kind of really throw their weight behind actually thinking about making money and caring about making money because it's a company at the end of the day.
0: Joe, when you started kismatic that was the first company around kubernetes you eventually sold it did you learn anything about sales during that process when you built kismatic
2: yeah i mean so full transparency that's that's kind of my my core career background is uh like sales and sales engineering i'm like a self-taught programmer and computer science sort of person didn't go through the traditional routes but that you know that uh, I guess technical people go through. But I, I I don't know if I had any through the through the kismatic experience. I don't know if I had any real like sort of transformative insights or new new learnings around just sales in general. But I would say that my so just like the broader question of the the sort of startup dynamics and things to focus on, and, and in particular the kind of technology that I'm interested in, which is open source software. There's there's so many differences of opinion about like the, the sales energy required to go and, and generate like a, a, uh, uh, a necessary output to sustain a business, uh, i.e. revenue or some sustainable source of, or some sustainable source of momentum to keep a company at a, at a, at a growth rate where, you know, you can continue to raise investment or you can continue to fund, you know, salaries or pay, pay contractors or what have you. So, and I think in that, in that regard, I think the, the opinions I've had and the observations I've made have changed quite a bit over the last three or four years. I guess in particular, lots of open source startups tend to focus a lot on just initially just building the project and investing a lot of energy around that and then focusing on sort of users and, and engaging with people who, who are actually deploying the software and running it in different environments. Uh, as a sort of afterthought or sort of second order thing maybe after the project has reached a certain stage and i think that's oftentimes a mistake even even more so in 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 the really early days of of uh, doing a company around an open source project or projects which which i think increasingly is is the sort of the the, the primary way to build software companies of any kind but that's 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 also a, a broader sort of observation that that i think has caused me to change my my beliefs in, in some ways but, but yeah just like talking like sales i think manifests in a bunch of different ways and it, it it means more than just convincing investors to give you money or selling a potential customer on a product that they'll that they'll uh, in return pay for in uh in, in one lump uh, sum or a recurring fee of some kind i think sales is super like multi-dimensional like you when you're when you're a founder of a company, that's like essentially all you're doing all the time is just selling, regardless of if you're, you know, if you're a CTO or CEO. I, I really deeply believe that. Like, so the CEO is obviously just constantly selling from like a recruiting and vision and strategy perspective. The CTO, I think, is constantly selling on the architectural dimensions, like the convictions around what the product roadmap should be, getting the engineering team excited about. You know the the specific you know feature on the on the roadmap that's getting implemented in the next you know week or so or two weeks or month, you know it's constantly selling around the sort of broader macro technology trends that that he or she is seeing as CTO of that company and constantly needing to keep both the internal like you know technical people in the company excited about that as well as um, the industry and the analysts and everybody else. I think sales is pretty crucial regardless of any kind of, any kind of company, maybe almost in all cases. And I think there's some exceptions, like there's companies like Atlassian that have just figured out how to build premium or enterprise versions of, uh, of products that don't require a ton of sales energy or sales investment up front. But um, I think that's, uh, that's, that's ultimately the exception. And then like later on, they, they end up having to hire lots of salespeople as they reach a certain amount of scale and stuff. So, yeah, that's some brought some uh, general thoughts on on the sales part of it. It's pretty pretty uh, pretty interesting topic.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, the kind of the default to open source in this cloud native space and maybe you figure out the business model later or you know, if you're wise you figure out the business model up front. So there are all these, you know, in the cloud native space, it's like all these companies built around Kubernetes and there are companies that are selling something around container networking or service proxying or all of these little niche things in the Kubernetes space. Like, do you think that it's, are these viable businesses, these open source, these companies that build around an open source and then they sell, I guess like that. typically they're selling either like an enterprise edition or a nice UI that, you know, that because you, you have to build some sort of, some sort of open source project in order to gain traction in your vertical within the cloud native space and then you have to have some sort of upsell whether it's consulting or i mean the cloud cloud era models typically like consulting plus a enterprise edition i mean what are the viable business models in that cloud native highly vertical open source technology space
2: yeah, that's a really big question. I I, uh, I have a lot of personal opinions on this. I think that might be why you're asking the question. There's far less pervasive knowledge, like distributed on the internet, or at least from people's you know varying experiences around which business models or monetization models, in particular, might work as related to open source projects and company and company building. I mean, I think I think there's a few that work well, and, and some that work better than others in different cases. Like commercial, so just the the umbrella of commercial open source sometimes means companies that just sell support and services and training around an open source project. And I think there's a ceiling to the the the, the kind of businesses you can build with that. So I would I would put a company like Morantis in that case, where you know OpenStack started to get lots of traction as an open source project, and Morantis. Um, had a fairly large data center consulting integration and, and sort of services management business. So they basically decided to double down on OpenStack and they put, you know, hundred or so people on OpenStack development and implementation and, and integration projects with uh, enterprises. And they gradually grew that business. And I think they've been able to grow a fairly, fairly large company with some, you know, transitions and and uh, course corrections along the way. I think there's other proof points of just company selling support services or Subscriptions based on, you know, 100% open source offerings. I think Hortonworks is another example of a company that's, that's basically done that, where they've taken a collection of the Hadoop ecosystem projects and also built some of their, some of their own. I think Hortonworks was uh, the company that came out with Yarn uh, along with a couple of other companies, which is a sort of distributed scheduling execution runtime for, for MapReduce and Spark and all these other data processing tasks in, in Hadoop environments. And, uh, you know, so they've built a kind of a distribution and packaged that, but they don't have any proprietary software. They're like 100% open source. Uh, and yet they were still able to go public and, and grow their business pretty meaningfully. I think that's one model. Another model is, you know, there's this sort of, like you hinted at it, this combination of proprietary and open source code in the product development sort of strategy. And those kinds of companies are, are commonly known as open core. And open core means like there's the, the vast majority of the, the code or the, or the software that company is shipping is open source, but there's a small veneer or wrapper of like proprietary code sort of layered on top of, of that open core sort of uh, nucleus or foundation of, of software the company is sort of built on. And that's actually what they go and sell for commercial licenses. Mm. And you know, that, that model, I think, is a little bit more widely implemented by by commercial open source companies because I think there's just there's just a, a greater propensity to capture value in that model, mostly because you have these sort of enterprise edition, sort of community edition dynamics where, and this, this is something that Docker did recently where there's like community edition, open source, top to bottom, Apache, Apache licensed or GPL licensed. And then the enterprise edition is basically... Um, some combination of proprietary and open source, and they uh, and those companies will sell a license around that. I think that's the second fairly common model. There's a third model, which I think is is pretty interesting and not not as uh, widely discussed, and that's basically open source distributed through a SaaS, uh, a SaaS right. distribution model. Where you know, I'll take an example of a company like Fastly, where they're fundamentally built on, on some open source libraries and projects that, you know, you could basically take, cobble together and build your own sort of local version of what Fastly is offering on your own infrastructure. But they basically handle all that for you and they offer it up through an API and they give you the, the DSL and the sort of interface and API consistency that you would see from the open source Varnish and H2O and these other systems that they're they're built on top of. Uh, but they basically service uh, service their customers one hundred percent through an API and, and a SaaS platform, which is kind of interesting. I would also consider those companies open source though, but it's like a totally different model. It's basically one hundred percent proprietary essentially, and you're you're paying for like access to an API and API keys, and and that's a that's a third model. Uh, there's a fourth one that I haven't haven't really fully internalized yet. <laughs> I think is kind of interesting, but it's way out there. It's like blockchain stuff.
0: Well, yeah. so. Greg does this stuff impact you cuz like I think readme is is a really interesting business because it's it almost seems like you have to you know you're mostly focused on user experience and front end stuff but you cuz you're building developer documentation which is not necessarily high bandwidth for any individual instance but the user experience the the design is really emphasized but also, it's a, it's a developer product, so you probably see how, at least whether or not you see the first order effects of Kubernetes, like companies migrating their infrastructure to Kubernetes, you certainly see the second order effects, like it's becoming much cheaper for companies to run, you know, to to scale infrastructure. It's becoming much more, it's a, a much more orderly process for companies who. Are, who want to scale on this containerized architecture. And so you, some one of the second-order effects is you see uh, companies building more APIs and opening up their APIs because it's easier to build services and externalize those services. So how are you know, these changes that, that JJ just described, most of these are essentially back-end changes. How do you view these changes like from an engineering standpoint at Readme?
1: Yeah, in APIs, uh, Kubernetes definitely, but also Lambda is something that's shown up in the past year or two um, and gotten really popular, and that is more specific to APIs. Um, For people who don't know, Lambda is kind of this new, it's been around for a while, but this new concept from Amazon, some other companies, uh, Google has one called Endpoints. That's basically just a way to kind of run a function in the cloud, and it's a stateless function that it runs and returns something. And it's basically kind of like an API. It's perfect for APIs, uh, amongst other things. And some other things are internal microservices started to get big. Um, there's a lot of technology trends that, yeah, like you said, don't affect us directly because we don't really care if you're on Kubernetes or if you're, you know, not on Kubernetes. It's an API, so it doesn't really matter. But as far as like how it how it affects us and how how it matters to us, I've always thought the most interesting to me, uh, the most interesting. Part of kind of the heavy tech is taking it and making it palpable for whether it be the average developer or even developers who aren't true CS majors who you know have been doing this for 20 years. Um, I think there's going to be a huge shift in what we see as someone who programs. Um, There's always going to be computer science people. I have a CS degree, I do enjoy you know the heavier tech stuff, but I think that that the We, people like that, are going to be quickly dwarfed. You know, even the people who listen to this podcast are going to be quickly dwarfed by the people who, you know, kind of are meddling around with JavaScript on a weekend or something like that. And I think there's a huge desire for people to make stuff, not developers, just people in general. And code is becoming easier and easier and people are becoming more technically literate because they grew up using Facebook. They grew up with a MySpace page where they could mess around with CSS, stuff like that. And I think it's going to be a lot harder to find people who haven't written a few lines of JavaScript or written, you know, okay, really just JavaScript, I guess. It's going to be the main language, I think, for a while, um, for better or for worse. That's kind of where we see our position kind of in between that, kind of mm, bridging the gap between these people who these many, many, many people who just want to write a little bit of code to make a personal website or simplify their workflow at work every day. Maybe they're a VC and they want to just build something that kind of helps them qualify, you know, leads a little bit better or something like that by pulling in two or three APIs. So that's kind of where we see our sweet spot. It doesn't really answer your question, but I think that the, you know, just technology has grown so much both on the back end, uh, on the consumer side, just pretty much everywhere that, you know, that's what we see our sweet spot is being right between kind of the really hard stuff and let some people work on the really hard stuff and let some people just consume it in an easy way. And uh, we see it as our job to kind of make it easy for those non-technical people to to, to build stuff.
0: When you say people like us will get dwarfed, do you th- is that because we're too in the weeds? Like we can't see the forest for the trees we can't see how how high level the apis have gotten because we're just like so steeped in the technology
1: that's not what i meant at all um i do think that's true we can talk about that separately but no i don't mean dwarfed in anything other than it's not like computer science people are going to be worse or make less money or be less valuable i just kind of see it more of like you know dwarfed in volume Precisely, yeah, yeah. And it's not. It's not because there's going to be fewer people going through CS. There's going to be way more. I just mean that it's a percentage is going to be dwarfed because it's like math, for example. You know, there's not percentage wise. Every everyone uses math. Not many people, you know, do math for a living or you know, have mastered in it. Just because math has become so ubiquitous to your to everyone's job that you know you need it for no matter what you're doing. And that's kind of what I meant.
0: Hmm. And do you see? the readme business changing as those integrations get easier and those uh, you know the the apis become more robust and there's more apis uh, because i could imagine you know there's been some different attempts at maybe an api marketplace Mm -hmm. things like that do you see that as a potential point of expansion
1: yeah, I, I think that uh, the API space is littered with a bunch of things like marketplaces and stuff like that that just didn't catch on for whatever reason. Why a lot didn't of it's because it will never catch hasn't on. That
0: happened? Mm-hmm. Why why hasn't that happened? Why hasn't there been like a, the marketplace for APIs that we magically stitch together easily with the drag and drop tools?
1: It sounds great, doesn't it? Uh I think the reason why though it hasn't caught on is because there's really traditionally there's only really been most APIs tend to be for a company, meaning that, you know, Lyft or Uber will have an API and it's it's not an API you can just use out by itself. It's an API that is very tied to their brand. Um I think most if you look at you know any listing of like the most popular APIs, you've heard of the company and they're not an API company, with the exception of, you know, Stripe and stuff like that. And I think that the hard part is that these companies don't want their APIs on a marketplace because it dilutes their value. They'd rather it be very core to their business. They'd rather have it, you know, look like their site, be like their site, control the entire user experience. And when a lot, of, you know, most of these marketplaces are just apps and APIs that don't have a brand behind them and they're just one-off APIs and it's, they, it just comes off as a bunch of like useless APIs, I, I think. There's some good ones like, you know, currency converters and IP lookups and stuff like that. But I think for the most part, there hasn't really been a great market. There hasn't been a great... I think you'd have a hard time coming up with 10 really great APIs you could think of that, you know, aren't tied to a brand or aren't tied to a company. That's my opinion, at least.
0: Yeah, so you had this API conference recently. You put on a conference yes. about APIs, or just a developer conference. What were the goals in putting on that conference, and what were the major takeaways from your experience at it?
1: Sure. My goal, there were obviously a lot of goals. Uh, back to the whole, you know, selling my soul to make money type thing. Like, <laughs> of course, some of the goals were to, like, meet customers, to, you know, introduce new people to to read me, stuff like that. But that wasn't the goal, the real goal. The real goal for me was, I think, basically what we just talked about. I think that when i go to api conferences i hear a lot of stuff about swagger the open api initiative i hear a lot about kubernetes i hear a lot about you know a lot of things and i think that to a certain extent a lot of people who are building apis lose sight of one thing which is that the only point of building an api is to get people to use it maybe it's an internal microservice you still want people to use it and i think that i wanted to hear more talks that were more focused on the end user as opposed to the development experience. Not that I don't think that there's a gigantic place for development practices or for, you know, using different technologies or talking about what technologies to use. But, you know, at, at API conferences, there's a lot of talk about things like hypermedia APIs and stuff like that, which are an interesting concept if you sat down and talked about them, not to too much time talking about the but, you know, hypermedia APIs are basically self-describing APIs that, you know, can, when you get a request, you know what to do next. And it knows all about a lot of tells you information and self documents and, you know, a concept actually sounds cool, but in practice, it's a, they're impossible to figure out and to use and everything. And the point of the conference was basically I wanted the message to be, you know, APIs are going to be so stupidly powerful, but only if we make them simple for the average person to use. And when I say the average person, I mean not people, you know, I can figure out any API given enough time because, you know, I have a CS degree, I've been programming for a long time, I'll figure it out. Not everyone has that ability. Um, I think there's a lot of things that we take for granted um, with APIs that, you know, regular people, um, people who aren't programmers but still want to make something, you know, we, we lose them at that point. Anything from just like, headers and, you know, query strings and the difference between them and what's the difference between a put and a post and, you know, URL encoding things properly and, you know, JWT tokens and just these, there's a gigantic list of things that aren't actually complicated to me because I've been hearing about them for years, for example, but someone new to an API is never, ever going to be able to figure it out. So um, that was kind of the message of of the conference was, you know, there's a lot of really cool stuff out there, like GraphQL, I think, is making it a little bit easier to understand how to use APIs, stuff like that. But that was the message, was I wanted people to, um, you know, think about that. Uh, We had three sections, so most API conferences talk a lot about the the middle of our three sections. The first for us was designing your API, the middle was building, and the latter was um, marketing. And I was really happy with the, the the beginning and the end. I was happy with all the talks, but I was happy with the beginning and the end talks because a lot of the feedback we got was, you know, wow, we've never seen a talk like that at an API conference. You know, they weren't very technical at all in the sense that we didn't talk about programming, but they were very in-depth and technical about, you know, what how to market your API or, you know, how to sell your API or how to price your API, things like that that um, don't always come up at at API conferences.
0: There are so many conferences these days do you guys think that we're at peak conference
1: oh god yeah there's way too many conferences and we probably should not have had a conference although there are useful conferences
2: i mean i so i actually don't go to that many conferences i started the the kubernetes conference and i I go to all of those there's only two a year but um, i might go to two or three other ones per year in addition to that so i mean there's gonna be
0: many more more than two kubernetes conferences before long I, i think you're
2: right i think you're right
0: yeah so but uh, sorry go ahead i I interrupted you
2: no, no no, uh, I mean that's pretty much all i mean i i don't i don't I don't go to, to so many conferences that I have this sort of super well well framed active right. uh, here, but I think there are too many conferences, mostly because like as an example, I'll see I'm not gonna name names at all, and I should probably be even more abstract about this <laughs> some people that are like. I know are doing like really serious and heavy, heavy, heavy investment initiatives around specific projects. And I just see them at conferences and they're at like every single conference. And I'm like, at some point, what, what is the value beyond the networking and maybe the recruiting aspect? And if that's the case, like, you know, you shouldn't have like all of your core technologists at those conferences, they should actually be working with the customers or building the product or, you know, engaging with, with their internal teams to actually get, the 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 new you know the, the new thing adopted rather than spending their time at 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 conferences and so I think from that standpoint I think we might we might be approaching peak conference or like there there may be two many conferences
0: yeah well because so the conferences are great for networking and recruiting and lead gen but you have to have a strong basis that you're compounding off of with those uh, those outreach efforts like because that's what it is it's outreach and if you have you have to have something that's underpinning the outreach wait so greg did you say that you had you had some uh conference fatigue or conference regret like maybe you shouldn't was the roi not there in retrospect
1: oh no that was uh that was definitely more of a uh not wanting to be a cliche than uh, oh. not getting the our back or roi back i i think that one when we went into it one thing i want to make sure is we had one strong perspective we were pushing. I just I didn't want to just do it for the sake of having a conference, right? And I also wanted to make sure we had three or four things that felt unique and memorable. You know, we followed the same formula that every every conference does. We didn't do anything like you know. Completely random Like we were like Okay I was gonna get there Put headphones on And listen to the speakers alone In silence Or like we didn't do anything Like weird like that It was still just a conference But I wanted to like Try to do my best To make sure that it was That there's something special About it That was at least Slightly memorable Because I think I don't think there's actually You know I do agree That there's too many conferences But there's too many everything Um, There's too many startups There's too many podcasts There's too many everything and that's not a bad thing. That doesn't say that doesn't mean don't do a podcast or don't don't do something else. It just means if you're gonna do it, you have to make sure you put time and effort into doing it right and make it so that it stands out and is memorable. You know, there's just like there's so many podcasts, of course. But that doesn't mean don't do it. It just means you need to be better at it. You need to be Whatever that means for the podcast, maybe it means be more rigorous, maybe it means be shorter or be longer, or ask more interesting questions, or you know have a higher production quality, stuff like that.
0: So speaking of things for which there are too many, I want to ask both of you about <laughs> the state of cloud providers because I feel like both of you have unique perspectives on cloud providers, and this is a just a subject I like to cover uh, and I like to ask people their their ongoing thoughts. You know, we already talked about. Lambda and Kubernetes, which are two things that are impacting the growth of cloud providers and the perspective of cloud providers. So we have Azure, AWS, Google, and you know that we've got like IBM, DigitalOcean. There's some other cloud providers. So I want to talk about the major players, but but first, I mean, do, is there room for? The other cloud providers, like the IBM and the DigitalOcean, or perhaps others, or is or is this going to be like a a winners take all environment?
1: I don't really have a strong opinion, other than I think that the actual like cloud providing tends to be a race to the bottom, and I think that because this is what I like is the you know taking the raw tech and kind of building on top of it. I don't really see any incentive. I mean, yes, there's Microsoft, Amazon, and Google all have all have products in the space, I don't see a huge incentive for a new company to come along and try to like steal away some of these, you know, pennies per whatever um, businesses. I do see a lot of people though coming along and building businesses on top of these. Like for example, Lambda. Mm -hmm. Lambda is probably a really cool technology. And I say probably because it's also really hard to get started, really hard to use, really hard to manage. And Amazon does all the powerful stuff, but I think there really needs for Lambda to ever really take off and be used by people who aren't just, you know, technologists. I think that Lambda needs a Heroku on top of it, and I think that is where we're going to see. I don't know if it's going to be the companies that make a ton of money, because you could argue whether or not Heroku successful. Like, they're very successful in the sense that we all know about them. We all use them. Um, they seem to be pretty successful, but they're also not amazon I do think that we're going to see a lot more of those companies that build on top of, you know, Azure, AWS, all the Google stuff. I think I don't know if financially they're going to be the best off, but that's where I tend to see a little more. I'm a little more interested.
0: Joseph, any perspectives on this?
1: Yeah, I, I would I would tend to agree with what Jeff
2: said. Uh, sorry, with what Greg said around the race to the bottom. I mean, there's there's just this mad rush to offer every possible menu compute instance type and size permutation of cpu memory disk ram offering and i think there's so much competition that that people are just gonna be forced to offer the lowest possible price point and um, it'll just get commoditized down down to close close to zero but there's also lots of interesting you know quote unquote platform services that are that are getting shipped kind of trying to change the way people deploy software and and integrate it with other middleware offerings. And uh, I think that, that uh, this is, this is where there's going to be lots of interesting developments and innovations in the cloud provider area, but uh, I'm not sure, like back to your question, Jeff around the, you know, the, the little guys, is there space for the, you know, the packets and the digital oceans of the world? Like, I think there, I think there is in, 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 in the sort of midterm or mean, uh, you know, median between, now and cloud provider sort of compute locality ubiquity and 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 you know maybe in the future hundreds of data centers servicing you know the the latency needs of people running in in ireland uh and serving you know serving uh you know a few million telco customers where they're still running in colos and they're still having like to run their own data centers for for speed and performance reasons and latency reasons yeah i i'd say that uh I, mean, my, I tend to think that there's going to be a concentration of three or four dominant cloud providers, and all of the other smaller ones will just get sort of consolidated and aggregated in through, through acquisition or through just getting absorbed into just running on all those core major three or four platforms, uh, like, like Greg was mentioning, just the sort of higher level compute offerings that people are just going to build on top of cloud providers The Lambda stuff is very interesting for sure as well. Yeah, I mean, I think people want to to really only pay for the compute cycles their applications consume. And I think the, the sort of function execution sort of model lends itself best to that. But I think we're very far away from... Solving for the, the usability and deployment sort of ease 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 of use that people are are used to now with things like Docker and 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 and, uh, and Kubernetes and these other frameworks that that run container based apps. So yeah, I, I think that all of this is still really early on. Like one, one of the one of the things I I remind people of when they go like oh it's all going to the cloud and you know data centers are completely going away is like the IT industry like overall is like maybe 4 trillion dollars and this is i think documented by Gartner and other analysts and like if you add up all of the the sort of numbers from public cloud and and also including SaaS vendors like every single like Salesforce, Workday it's only about 400 billion you know including all of those providers and so it's you know we've only kind of scratched the surface of about 10% of like basically all the core Infrastructure, IT functionality in enterprises, uh, in the sort of as a service model, which which basically means like, and we're about fifteen years into that transition, which means we have like at least another fifteen or twenty years before there's like a material transition overall. So I think we're still super early days, which is pretty cool. It's exciting. I don't think anyone really knows what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, and you know I think so. Obviously the the lambda stuff, the functions as a service what that does is it raises the efficiency with which these large cloud providers can allocate their compute so they can more more effectively utilize their servers because they're they're pairing their small amounts of compute with small requests for 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 compute and so that that lets them lower the prices on those and so as they get better economies of scale there then that further squeezes the smaller players who have uh less volume demanded of their of their services like IBM or, or DigitalOcean, although IBM ha- has a function as a service too. So maybe they get the same utilization. Maybe maybe or they maybe they get something close to the same utilization. Or maybe the margins are good enough so that they don't need as good utilization as an AWS. They just need something that's that's similar. And there's also, you know, like you like you said, you know, you could there's the deployment and interfacing that there's a lot of room for improvement, the UX stuff. So if you built a nice UX or like a nice platform as a service for something specific, maybe it's like self driving car infrastructure or, or something like that, maybe you know, you can make a you can make a, a DigitalOcean or an IBM work in the future. And then there's also services. I mean, Rackspace went to services and that worked for rackspace i mean i think rackspace the the biggest part of their business ironically today is servicing aws clients which is interesting oh wow yeah i yeah i heard i heard about that not sure if it's true but so do you guys have a sense for whether the major cloud providers like azure aws and google are they starting to differentiate or do you feel like they're pretty much mirroring what each other does.
1: I think mirroring, you know, there's, there's definitely differences where like if you're running a .NET application, you're probably going to want to use Azure. Off the top of my head, I can't think of anything great, but like there's definitely reasons to use Google over other ones. I like AWS because when our site goes down, everyone else is down. So uh, we, (laughs) no one notices or cares. I think that I, I, I don't, I don't think it, Yeah, I think that's kind of every time anyone comes up with anything good, the rest of them do. Um, I have not seen a huge amount of... There definitely is differentiation. I do think it seems to me that... uh, Maybe I'm wrong about this because I haven't really used it. It feels like Google's trying to go a little more high level where Amazon's trying to go a little lower level. When I say high level, I don't necessarily mean like Heroku high level, but it does feel like Google's trying to go a little... Slightly more that route. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know why they don't differentiate. Probably simply because every, they do. And then the other three, co- the other two copy them and we're right back to not being differentiated. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with much, much of that. I think like
2: historically Amazon's just had the sort of time to market advantage and they've been there the longest and they have the most kind of aggregate sort of service portfolio offering and hundreds and hundreds of services. I I, I learn about new services almost like every month or so that like have been around for a year plus. And I like, they have so many services, so we've got like this huge disaggregated buffet of stuff, and then Google is like the newest one has has been really focused on their sort of open source strategy and kind of releasing these projects that sort of reflect the. The interface and the API that you'd be consuming directly from them uh, and the, you know, configuration format and the sort of core runtime as well. So you can take take those projects and run them anywhere. I think that's a very unique kind of thing to Google, sort of this kind of open cloud, open source based service offering. And then like Azure has sort of historically been very enterprise, you know, Windows server and kind of Office portfolio focused, and they've got like a huge advantage over both, I think, both Google and Amazon in terms of their customer relationships and all the uh, historical, you know, customer engagements and, and revenue that they've done just through being Microsoft. So like, there, I think there are differences, but like, I'd, I'd agree with Greg, that there, there's lots of commonalities in terms of how things end up normalizing as far as like compute choice and, and the sort of platform services that end up getting released. So yeah, I mean that's that's generally how I sort of look at that. But I think Google is kind of in the most unique kind of situation because they have they have this sort of very long term investment around you know wanting to get open source projects to a certain level of ubiquity that they either created or are heavily endorsing, and then you know making the sort of industry sort of believe and and buy into the fact that that they they uh, they have the best sort of managed services or hosted versions of those open source projects, which I think is just a, a radically different, like go to market and and sort of product strategy uh, as compared to Amazon or, or Microsoft. But, uh, you know, to Greg's point, like lots of these other cloud providers are now starting to kind of sort of do the same thing. So we'll see how it all plays out. Hmm.
0: Okay, so I want to begin to wrap up by talking a little bit more about running a company because I'm kind of starting to, I've been working on, you know, Ad for prize and just learning some stuff around running a software company that's that's been interesting to me and I I'd, I'd love to hear your uh your lessons. What are the biggest myths around starting a company? Like stuff that you read in books and blog posts and you hear in podcasts that you know, maybe has not borne out to be as true in your respective experiences. Uh, as it's advertised in the uh, company lore. My quick
2: one is, like, a lot of people say product market fit, you know, sort of problems cause startups to fail the most in terms of, like, you know, never being able to reach that sort of perfect equilibrium of, you know, what you're selling is exactly meeting some sort of sufficient demand uh, profile such that you can build a business. I think that's, like, a total, you know, sort of misnomer. The the much more common reason that startups end up failing, the the biggest thing to kind of harp in on if you want to really mitigate a lot of the risk is um, founder market fit or, or sort of founder fit in general. And if you don't really like kind of scrutinize that one the most, I think you'll either proceed forward and kind of sort of be in denial about a lot of the potential issues and conflict that that might come up like down the line or 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 the company will will be like really limited in terms of potential because the founders aren't like really on the same page about pretty much like everything critical in terms of the business and the motivations and the reasons why people are doing the thing and everything like that i think that's actually in reality like the vastly more common reason startups fail is the sort of founder founder market fit or founder founder fit kind of conflicts and i have some experience in that area but i think that's that's something to kind of pay attention to like if you're doing a company or if you're evaluating like do i have the right team on the sort of founding team side it's 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 super super critical to solve that and make sure that everyone is sort of super aligned about the vision and the opportunity and the, the sort of excitement and the conviction passion people have
1: beyond anything else i 100 agree with that i think that that's founder market fizz like a phrase i use all the time because i think that for example either of our companies not to put your company down jj but you know neither of our companies are ever it's not as good of an idea as for example airbnb and when i say as good of an idea i mean that you know obviously or uber for example and but I, there's no way I could have ever made a company like Uber successful ever. I think it's so important to find the company that that fits you, what you your ability and your passion because ability is important because it's kind of like being in a basketball game. You can't you know stop think about it every time. You need to just kind of like rely on your gut, rely on your reflexes, stuff like that. And for passion, it's not fun starting a company. Um, I love it. It's the best thing I ever did, but day to day it's just it you just take a beating. And if you're not passionate about it, if you don't really believe what you're working on, it's not going to end well. And I think yeah, I 100% agree that product, you know, more important than anything else is not the size of your market, not the size of, you know, anything like that. It's, it's just how closely aligned are you to the, the thing you're building?
0: All right, guys. Well, it's been great talking to you, and I want to thank you both for coming on Software Engineering Daily.
1: Thank you very much for having us. Thanks, Jeff. Nice to meet you, Greg. You too.